All right, this is Jack Donovan, author of The Way of Men, and you are listening to Start the World. I'm here today with the author of Sanction the Book, Roman McClay. He lives in a converted storage container uh, around almost 9,000 feet. And uh, he's going to talk to us about his book that a lot of people that I know have been really turned on to. And it talks about a lot of uh, uh, subjects that I think are important to a lot of men. And, uh, and I, I'm also quoted at the beginning, so there's that. All right, so Roman, uh, tell me about Sanction the Book. Uh, hey, Jack, thanks for having me on, man. So um, just first off, uh, people should know it's fiction. So it's a story, and it's broken up into three volumes. And the whole book was written at once. So it is one book, and it's finished, it's done. But I, I published them sequentially, and I give a little bit of time between each book. So the first two of three are out. Uh, and the third one will be coming out um, probably in two to three months. But just so people know, it is fiction. It's a story. Um, and it's broken up into three volumes. So the, so the volume three is where all the crazy stuff comes in, right? That's it. You're saving that. You're hooking everybody in and then, then it gets really insane. <laughs> I mean, the, it, there actually is a noticeable difference between each volume. And there's actually a reason for that. Because the premise of the book is the narrator is uh, artificial intelligence. Um, and so that's that the premise of the book is that AI is writing the book. And so with, with each subsequent volume, there is a change in the tone and tenor of the book. And there's plot implications for that. I don't want to get too much into it. But one of the things you and I were talking about before we went to air was that I tend to look at the world um, kind of in threes. So I, I'll look at whatever phenomenon I'm looking at currently, and then I'll look one level below it and one level above it. And that, that helps me kind of get my arms around a phenomenon, right? So you have the, like the terrestrial plane, the, the earth that we're living on. Then you've got this, you know, let's say the sub uh, level where the roots and the mycorrhiza and all the bacteria and everything under the soil is at, and then you have the atmosphere right so you've got your oxygen nitrogen and all that and so if i'm if i'm looking at you know growing crops i'll look at not just the crops themselves but the soil below and the atmosphere above <clears throat> and so i tend to take that approach with whatever phenomenon it is right so if, 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 if we're discussing or analyzing masculinity i'll look at it how it um manifests say in two men like you and i speaking to each other right now our masculinity manifests in the way we interact but then there's also what's going on below the surface right there's the psychology and the genetics and the you know our past right like whatever has happened to us in the last 40 years of our lives and then there's what's above us let's say ontology or religion or culture and so I'll look at that as well. And so I, one of the things I do in the book is I tend to expatiate on whatever phenomenon I'm looking at with that in mind, with that kind of construct of as above, so below kind of phenomenon or kind of um, approach. And so this makes the book probably three times as complex as it needs to be. But for most people, I think they really enjoy that. The feedback that I get 
has been that they like the fact that I analyze it from that kind of framework because it helps them, the reader also get a, a, a fuller um, analysis of, of whatever it is that they're concerned about. Because each person has their own things they're interested in, in the book. I mean, the book has a lot of different things in it, right? And, and so each person kind of latches on to the thing they're most interested in. And the, the feedback that I've gotten is they really like that I do go below and above the phenomenon. And I'll just add one more thing, is that the reason I did a story is because I, I'm naturally attracted to stories. I'm a fiction reader. You and I have talked about big into fiction. And so for me to write a story was natural. But it was also one of the things I learned when I was reading nonfiction, specifically about the brain, was that I found out that stories are actually much more effective at transferring information because of the way the human brain is set up. And there's a lot of data out there now that shows kind of why, and I actually get into the why and the how, right? The actual brain hardware and software that makes stories so effective, narrative so effective as a way to tr you know, transmit information. And so not only was fiction easier for me because it's my natural kind of metier, but it's also more effective. And this actually, again, circles back onto the plot because like I said at the beginning, the, the quote unquote author of the book is AI. And, right. and AI is up to something, right? Like this yeah. book is up to something. <laughs> cool. Right. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. The, the stories definitely, uh, I mean, that's why we have a myth. I mean, that's the whole purpose of myth is to, to create a, a philosophical framework without uh, because philosophers writing can be really boring you know like right. there's there's if you know you can just have people discussing you know the nature of being or uh, and and existence and, and does do thoughts come before uh you know words or do words come before thoughts and you know like uh you can have that or right. you can have a story that tells people what they what they're really looking for which is a narrative that they can apply to their lives I mean, I was actually just writing in, in the book I'm working on, I was just writing a paragraph about that the other day, about the, I mean, that's the job of a priest, really, is to take these stories even and then help you apply them to your life. I mean, that's what the people have always done. And uh, I, mean, I guess I guess that's what Jungian psychologists do in a certain way. They try to apply archetypes and things like that to, to people's lives and use myth and so forth to do that. I don't know how effective it is. But that uh, seems to be a part of their their thing as well. Um, but uh, yeah, so you said that the book is uh, obviously narrated by AI. But uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the 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 bones of the the, the plot? Without obviously, you know, uh, it's a it's a quite a long book as as I understand. So I don't think you're going to give it away. Right. Right. Yeah. No. And one of the things one of the things I like to say is it's kind of like the Bible and that even though you know Jesus dies at the end, it yeah. doesn't ruin the Bible to know that. <laughs> <laughs> right. right? So, yeah. Right. So I can give away things and it won't ruin the story because I think the actual process of the story is actually what's fun about it, not necessarily what happens. Having said that, I will not give away the end. Um, 
But yeah, so the bones of the story is this. There is a businessman uh, in Colorado. He is a scientist and a businessman. He has a, a big uh, genetics company. And, and basically what they've invented is a form of CRISPR. Now CRISPR, for those that don't know, is basically gene editing uh, tools. They use a vector, which is a virus. They denucleate it, they take out the guts, and then they put in their own programming and inject that into a cell or a strand of DNA. And it changes the gene expression. So you get a gene that maybe previously would have caused Parkinson's or cancer or something. They introduce this CRISPR vector and it no longer, that gene no longer expresses in, a, in that malady. And so you can cure illnesses, right? This is pretty new technology, but I think it's, it's in the public domain enough that most, most people have heard of CRISPR. Now, that his company has designed a CRISPR to eliminate antisocial behavior because his belief is, is that antisocial behavior is genetic, that there's certain genetic alleles like the DRD4 and the MAO-A short chain allele, these genes code for aggression. You know, the, the kinds of genes that are seen as, quote, problematic in modernity, right? Aggression, right. grudge holding, uh, uh, behaving in antisocial ways, ways that our ancestors took for granted. Uh, there's this one line that I was reading from one uh, tribe, and they said, we don't do agriculture. Raids are our agriculture, right? And, yeah. Right, yeah. And so... But in modernity, right, like that mindset that you would raid instead of grow crops, right, that you right. would be a pirate instead of a, uh, an employee is considered antisocial. And yeah. so, right. And so he. Well, it was probably decided, considered antisocial by the farmers. Yes. <laughs> yes. As well, but yeah. Yes. And, and so he decides he can fix this uh, problem in modernity, which is criminality. Mm -hmm. And so, but he knows that he, as a civilian, as a mere businessman, he does not have access to the population that's committing the crimes. And so he decides to run for governor of Colorado. And that way he'll have control of the prison population as governor, right? Okay. And yeah, because it, he basically wants to fix recidivist criminals, criminals that are already arrested, serving time, maybe they're doing a five or a 10 year bit. Okay. And they're going to be released, and he wants to fix them before they're released. So when they go out, they don't reoffend. Now, in order to win the governorship, he knows he has to come up with another technology because he know, he's not political, right? He's not entrenched in the political system, and he doesn't feel like he can win on his own. So he develops artificial intelligence. He develops a embodied artificial intelligence. And by embodied, I mean the, the AI is not a computer like HAL 9000 in um, 2001 Space Odyssey, the right. Stanley Kubrick movie. It's not like that. It's embodied in a, in, a, in a man's body like yours or mine. But obviously with the central nervous system, the brain is, is artificial intelligence. So it's very confident, right? And so he develops that and tasks that AI with helping him win the election. He basically says, okay, AI, and that AI's name is Mo. He says, Mo, get me elected. And so Mo does. And so he wins the governorship. He has control now of the prison population in Colorado. And their first subject, patient zero, is 
one of the main characters in the book, and his name is basically inmate 161-80339. And he is the first ta test uh, uh, case for them. And the book then goes through the process of the AI interviewing, testing, uh, messing with the genome of this inmate to try to perfect their process before they introduce it to the larger prison population. And one of the things that that AI does is create an additional AI as a partner to help him, right? He basically hires an assistant, but he creates it. And that AI is called Isaiah. And he's a little different from the first AI because the first AI is more cognitive. He's super rational, you know, super left brain. And he, Mo, creates Isaiah and Isaiah is more visceral more limbic, more animal. He's got emotions, okay? Still with the highline cognition, but the addition of, of the mammalian brain, you know, the, the emotions. And so now they as a team embark on a new task because they feel the governor's task of getting him elected and changing the genome of, of recidivist criminals is too low ball for them it's too small ball for them they think that's boring and they have much bigger plans and so from there i think the line is hijinks ensue <laughs> okay so what kind of what kind of feedback have you gotten about the book so far um i would say it's been mostly positive mm -hmm. um it's starting to leak out you know because it's kind of sequestered in our little side of the world you know whatever you want to call this thing that you and i are a part of right. um it, and so when it was sequestered in that for the first year because the book's been out just over a year um it was it was pretty much monolithically positive right it's starting to leak out into the wider world now and so i'm getting some feedback that's less than positive just because the themes are are you know the, the, the same themes that we all get pushed back on. You've been getting pushed back on it for a long time, right? Sure, and, yeah. And yeah, so I'm starting to receive some of that. I think the thing I'm proudest of is that the feedback I get for the most part is that as a work of fiction, as literature, people seem to think that it's, that it's, that it's reached a certain level of, that it's no longer merely an ideas book, but it's actually, it's, it's crossed the threshold into some kind of poetry and some kind of actual literature. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud of because I consider myself an artist first and, and then a, a man interested in ideas and culture kind of second. And so I wanted the book to rise and fall on, on its artistic, um, quality first and and so i'm pretty happy to say that for the most part I, I feel like i achieved that if if people's feedback is any indication um of that because i think people seem to think that it ha it actually has achieved something uh, on the level of poetry and art excellent yeah that's good to hear um you know obviously the literary world uh, as, as far as i know uh as you said there's certain ideas that uh just won't, wouldn't get published in mainstream press, you know, uh, just, oh. you know, because it's, you know, it's a bunch of women in New York city, uh, who basically who review all that stuff. 
And uh, I mean, I, I never could have published The Way of Men. Like if I could have sent that around for years, I mean, I had no intention of doing that at that point. I'd already been published by a company that was run by my friend, but it was actually, uh, you know, the company, more of a company that we go to brick and mortar stores. And so it was in Barnes and Noble, my first book and everything, but uh, uh, there was no money in it. <laughs> so the, actually there's more money in self-publishing. Uh, it's more prestigious to go through the, the New York companies, but unless you're, uh, you know, Danielle Steele or whatever, uh, you're probably not going to buy a mansion with the, the Danielle Steele. I mean, with the uh, regular publishing money. Um, you know, I, don't, I think they get like just, you know, like 10, just a fraction of, of the sales. You know, because it's all marketing yeah. and so forth. So, but that's, that's what's cool. The, the internet uh, and all this, these self-publishing uh, opportunities and channels that we didn't have before because they were gatekeepers. And uh, that's good and bad because obviously anyone can do anything. And so there's tons of garbage, but uh, you know, thousands of people aren't going to read something that's garbage. <laughs> you know, it's you can only, there's a, well, okay. That's not true. <laughs> that was wrong. That was a lie. Uh, <laughs> But you know, it has to it has to have some kind of appeal and not just be. I mean, because there, there are a lot of people who just write their feelings down on a piece of paper and then publish it as a book and and think that it's going to be, like, I guess if I put it out there, people are going to buy it, and that's just not how this works. Um, you know, there's a lot of other things that are involved in that, but uh, no, it's 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 like I said, it's good that we can get this stuff out there, and then it you you don't have the gatekeepers, but then you have to go out and find your own market. So, yeah, exactly. And, and I, one of the things that I benefited from was the fact that the infrastructure was kind of already there. Guys like you and, and other guys had laid the groundwork for a guy like me to come along and kind of step into, right? Because you've been doing this for a long time. Yeah. And so the audience is kind of already there, you know? And I didn't even know it existed. I mean, I knew you existed because as you said, you're actually in the book. Um, but most of the guys that I've met in the last year that are a part of this thing that we're doing, I didn't know existed. And so uh, I really did benefit quite a bit from, from uh, the groundwork that you guys had laid. Now, having said that, I had to, you know, obviously I had to prove my own bona fides. And, and I'm lucky in that I've been able to do that. I mean, I, I I haven't achieved the numbers of, you know, the established authors like yourself, but I have sold around 3000 books, which is. It's a lot. Uh, it, it, think about whatever. Out of is a, that's a lot. Yeah. 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 I, mean, I mean, what's that? that that's what always blows me away is uh, imagine uh, those people in a football stadium, you know, your 3000 people or whatever, you know, like that's a lot of dudes. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's, it's very humbling. And, yeah. And, and it is mostly dudes too. I mean, it's 99.9% .9 dudes. I think I have 12 female readers. Um, because it, <laughs> it's, 
it's like it's such a macho book you know um, yeah but you know i'm i would consider my i would put myself in like the classical romantic uh category you know of the romantic writer you know the when masculine men were unashamedly poetic whether it's hemingway or melville or even the ancients you know whether you're talking about the iliad and the odyssey i mean these were masculine books but were highly interested in aesthetics and poetry and you know these kind of high level aesthetic concerns and so i would put myself in that in that category and so that it, it marries masculinity with with beauty and art and which is why your quote opens the book because you talk about that you know and you know that is something that you and i actually have in common and so i I feel like there is a renaissance going on in the masculinity movement where aesthetics now are becoming more and more important because they are tied to the virtues, right? They're not mere patina or, or they're not shallow endeavors. They're actually tied to, to the masculine virtues. Yeah. I, I don't know, you know, maybe it was the industrial revolution or something, but obviously well, men invented poetry and all the great artworks. And obviously there's a huge, you know, uh, in the art world now, obviously there would be like, well, that's a horrible thing that, you know, there weren't enough women artists back in the day, whatever. But, uh, you know, this has been a, a concern of men for a long time. And what's unfortunate is that uh, I think the establishment became so associated with uh, kind of you know there's a lot of leftism and and uh that whole agenda that goes with it and so all the people making art because there are people making art in the world um i mean i think it's the oscars tonight as we're filming this and yeah, there's still good movies that get made and sure. <laughs> you know there's still people who invest their entire lives making something that's emotionally powerful and whatever you know whatever you know most of the movies are unwatchable, but you know, there's still some great art being made there. And unfortunately, that whole establishment, it, it, they've decided what your, the official position is. And so I think a lot of men just kind of shrugged their shoulders and walked away from a lot of these concerns, you know, like aesthetics and, and, uh, and, and great works of literature and art and, and, and symphonies and, and really the, the things that make life grand like because yes. once you once you've once you've locked down the survival virtues and the, and you can you know eat and so forth i mean that's what makes life interesting and uh you know like you said homer and all these people you know are the great works of literature were about men having adventure and i think when that stopped happening i think men turned turned away from that yeah yeah, for sure. And so I feel like there is kind of a renaissance now. And I feel like you and I are part of it. And there's other people, obviously, a part of it. Uh, Bronze Age mindset uh, comes to mind, you know, and there's other people in our world now that are, are insisting on this marriage of masculinity and beauty, because I think it's intrinsic. I mean, I think it's innate to us. I don't think it's something that we had to conjure up. I think it was there latent all the time. And so 
one of the things I was thinking about was um, that there's, I forget who said it, it might've been Norman Mailer or it could have been Hemingway for, for all I know now that I think about it. But one of the things one of these artists said was that the closest men get to giving birth is the novel. That the novel is the uh, equivalent to the female giving birth. It's like the best we can do to match that. And I, I think that I, when I talk to my readers, they are unashamedly explaining to me how emotional the book makes them. In other words, yeah, they agree with the philosophy in it, right? Like mm -hmm. the, they agree with the ideas in it, sure, philosophically. Uh, although not all of them, I should say. But, but what they really like to talk about is the emotional impact, the characters and the story and the, the, you know, the literary nature of it the metaphors I use, et cetera, et cetera, that impacts them at an emotional level that they feel is, had been lacking because as you alluded to, the modern art world, whether it's film or music or uh, books or whatever, is so geared towards anti-masculinity yes. that they have felt left out by the art world. And so th this book for them has reintroduced, you know, it's rekindled that that spark that, that is in them innately, that search for beauty and to tap into the emotions that are innately male, <clears throat> the book is tapped into that and they feel very comfortable coming to me and saying, hey, I've, I really felt that. And I think that's been the biggest, I think, deal to me is to reach men on this emotional level. Mm -hmm. Because I, as you know, men have what I call masculine emotions. I think there's been this fallacy that men do not feel, right? That feelings are the domain of the female. Oh yeah, my dad, my, my, but one of my best friends, you know, he always used to say, uh, I used to have feelings, but I killed all those, you know, like was, <laughs> there, there's a lot of right. guys who definitely have that, that perspective, you know, but it's, it's also bullshit, you know? Yeah, yeah it's like technically bullshit, right? Because men have, actually very active limbic systems and in fact right. one of the studies i talk about in the book is they found that when they hook up fmri functional magnetic resonance imaging to brains of males and females and they show them affective images you know whether it's dead puppies or whatever and they show them these images that are meant to induce emotions that they could measure the affect in the brain of yeah. each subject, right? And and so on a scale of one to 10, let's say 10 would be super emotional and zero would be you're a psychopath, you feel nothing. Right. And, and, and it turned out that most men would feel like a six or a seven. Mm -hmm. And then when they would ask them, well, what did you feel? They would report a three or a four. So they would pretend to feel less than they did. Right. Now, here's the corollary. Here's the corollary. When they test women, it turned out women would actually feel a three or a four less, and they would report they felt a six or a seven. And so that sounds saying, about right. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds about right. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and you know what's it? Uh, yeah, you know, men, men are the true romantics. Really, they, yeah. I mean. Uh, just historically and even today and it, like i've talked to a lot of guys actually on this podcast about you know men will die for a beautiful idea 
And that's, it's it, it, like I said, it, I've said to a lot of people that uh, you actually have to be really, really responsible about how you invoke that because men, men kind of want to die for a beautiful idea. Yeah. Or, or at least, you know, in theory, you know, they really think about fighting and then theoretically possibly dying, but they don't really want to die for it. But, you know, it's, it's there. I mean, look at how popular the movie, you know, 300 was. Right. You know, like, uh, here's a story where everyone dies at the end. And uh, <laughs> isn't it beautiful? Fuck yeah! You know, and, yeah. and, that's, and that's, what's more romantic than that? You know, you know and that's uh, something that I think that gets missed a lot. And uh, you can really get a lot of guys going and, and be like, yeah, that, that's a righteous cause. Let's go. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a tricky thing. Yeah, and that is processed by the limbic system of the brain, the animal emotional centers of the brain. It's not processed by the neocortex, the rational part of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I, I do get into the science in the book because I do think men kind of need that, they need to be Sherpa'd up that mountain to say, look, this is actually the way your brain works, bro. It's normal for you to feel brotherhood and loyalty that i call these you know the masculine emotions things like brotherhood and loyalty and and protectiveness and and things like vengeance and 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 outrage and grudge holding like these are emotional phenomena and and so i wanted to kind of explain how that comes about and so there's quite a bit of discussion of, of the way the brain is actually organized from you know, the uh, cerebellum, the brainstem, the lizard brain, up to the mammal brain, which is the limbic system, up to the neocortex or the cortical cap. And so I get into quite a bit of discussion on that because I wanted men to understand their own brains. Like, this is why it works. You're not defective if you feel these emotions. You're, you're actually operating perfectly. This is how you were designed by evolution or God or whatever you believe in. This is how it works. And right. And so I, I, took, I took the effort to explain it that way because I think men are also uh, systematizers. We like to know how a machine works. We take carburetors apart and we look at the bowls and the jets and the gaskets and say, okay, now I know how a carburetor works. I put it back together, put it in the motorcycle or the car and fire it up and hopefully it works, right? Like, and I think we like to pull apart our own brains, our own psyches, our own lives and analyze them. And, and then try to put it back together and see if we can't have a functional human being at the end of it. And, and so I did take the time to do that um, at the genetic level, at the uh, functional level, you know, at, at the level of, of wetware, of the brain itself. And I did it because I feel like men need that. They need to understand the system. We, we seek order. We seek order yeah. and chaos. Anywhere there's chaos, we try to make order out of it. Right. And, and there's a million different ways to make order because all the orders aren't necessarily right. But, uh, you know, I mean, it's like all the religions of the world that's just trying to make order of the world, you know, and there's, you know, people have had, you know, obviously people worked for years under theories that were wrong, but that's the system we're going with right now, <laughs> you know, and so that was reality. And as long as you can put things in a framework where they, there's a, it's a comforting thing. You know, I think we, you know, we create, our job is, you know, to put it in cheesy uh, uh, social justice warrior uh, uh, framework. I mean, our job is to create safe spaces. Right. You know, chaos, chaos is, 
chaos is out there. We create the safe space, and that's what we're concerned with, and and uh, that's an ordered space inside of, inside of chaos. So it, right, it, and we do that, yeah, to our own brains as well. That's what psychology is, right? Like, how can we understand what's all these crazy things that are going on in my head? Absolutely, and then one of the things I talk about is the the you know, the bicameral nature of the brain, right? We have a left and a right hemisphere. And right. a lot of the work that's been done lately is basically decided in very simplistic terms that the right hemisphere is kind of the hemisphere of chaos. It's where your creativity comes from. It's what's more uh, online or functional during a dream state when you're sleeping. Mm -hmm. It's more activated under certain conditions where creativity and kind of a, uh, beneficial chaos is, is, is called for. And then the left hemisphere is your more rational side, your more logical side. And, and one of the things that happens during the dream state, it turns out, is that your right hemisphere has been downloading information throughout the day, right? So you and I are having this conversation, your right hemisphere is listening to my voice, my right hemisphere is listening to yours. It's also taking in all the sights and smells and sounds but you're not really aware of it right now. Your left hemisphere is more aware of what I'm saying than your right. Mm -hmm. And there's reasons for that. Uh, the left hemisphere is where the Broca's area and the language centers of the brain are actually located. And so there's reasons for that. But my point is, is that the right hemisphere is actually taking in a lot of data right now. Mm -hmm. And then what happens is, is when you go to bed tonight and you dream, what seems to happen is that the information the right hemisphere downloaded during the day will traverse the corpus callosum, that trench between the two hemispheres, and give the left hemisphere usable data. Basically, it will give it symbols, images, uh, archetypes, whatever, you know, how you dream in these strange ways. Mm -hmm. It will give it to your left hemisphere in, in useful data. So when you wake up, I'm sure you've had this phenomenon. When you wake up, you wake up with an idea. Like, oh, boom, and you get it. And, and then you get to work, right? You start painting or writing or doing some creative work because you, you wake up with an epiphany. And it seems like that's actually a function of, of the way the brain works during the dream state is that the right hemisphere is giving useful information that it had collected throughout the day via symbols and, and metaphors and, and creative language to the left hemisphere so it can process it into uh, something you can use, if that makes sense. Oh, no, absolutely. I mean, that's what, uh, uh, that's, I, I call it the washing machine. Like, it needs to be in the washing machine for a while. I don't know how long. <laughs> like, it, right. it, it'll come out the other side. Uh, it, like, I'm not very, I'm analytical in a lot of ways, but uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of the stuff uh, creatively and a lot of the good ideas and a lot of good writing when it's good, it just comes from nowhere. Yep. And that's when it's coming from, you know, the other side. And, uh, and uh, I think that's, you know, I've tried to experiment with meditation for that reason, because you kind of go into enough of a zone where you can kind of access that, you know, if I, if I sit for long enough, sometimes you'll, you'll get sit you know, long enough with your eyes closed and, you know, kind of, quiet your brain enough, you know, some of the dream state stuff will like pop over and you'll start to get a good ideas and get focused and so forth. I think that's one of the good purposes of use, uses of, 
of meditation. I mean, that's why I, how I use it to, when I start writing in the morning, I've started to do that now since I'm working on something. Yeah, exactly. It's like there's ways to access that right hemisphere during the day, during the waking state. Absolutely. Yeah. It could be psychotropic compounds. It could be meditation. There's the, uh, ecstatic religious states. There's all kinds of ways to uh, access, to explain this again in the book, because I do feel like, again, it's important that men understand what's happening in their brain, that that half their brain is metaphorical and symbolic and creative. And they live their lives maybe in a very rational, seemingly rational way, right? They kind of think about their taxes and their job and walking the dog. And they, they think about making sure that they don't run a red light and all these things in their day-to-day -day kind of mundane lives. But that really their brain is working on more creative things all the time. They're just not necessarily aware of it. And and so I wanted to explain how that, how that works. And one of the interesting things to me was when I found, I don't know if you know this, but um, that Broca's area I was talking about, that language center, and there's actually two, the Broca's and the Wernicke's. One is more for like comprehending language and, and one is more for articulating it once you understand it. Right. And so it turns out that in female, in females, a lot of times that broken area can be up to 30% larger than in males. And so women, they're just better talking, conscious that they can think things, they can process ideas, emotions, etc. But then they have a hard time articulating it compared to females. And so what men often do is they just don't talk about what they think because they notice they're not that good at it and right. right and and then what what I noticed next was obviously is there are exceptions right because one of my favorite uh quotes I think it's from uh, Camille Paglia she said the reason there's no female Mozart is because there's no female Jack the Ripper and I love that quote because she was basically saying that the the masculine energy whether it's dedicated to violence or like so destruction or creativity that they, they exist in the same amounts and and because men are so much more aggressive and violent mm -hmm. they're also that much more creative and i have noticed i'm sure you've noticed there are certain people throughout history oftentimes men although there are great female artists i mean sure Flannery o'connor is one of my favorite writers she, she's a woman there are exceptions, but most of my favorite artists are men and their capacity, their verbal and linguistic capacity is so grand. I mean, it re, you know, you talk about Shakespeare or Melville, Conrad. I mean, you talk about these guys and they reach another level, an almost religious level of, of the ability to use language like a tool. You know, it's like watching Michael Jordan play basketball or right. Laird Hamilton on a surfboard. Like when you watch them at their top of their game, you're like, I could never do that. And and when I read Shakespeare or Melville, I think the same thing. I thought, I could never twist and shape and use language the way they do. Yeah. And so what this led me to was a further investigation into the brain. And that's when I started to notice there was this 
possibly this third or fourth archetype of the male. You and I have talked about this. Yeah. Uh, currently, the world of males has been bifurcated into alphas and betas in the common parlance, right? So right. in the common argot of our side of whatever it is, this thing we do, men have been shoehorned into either alphas and betas. And because I learned those terms from primatology, from biology, what I did was is I, I kind of took it to the next step where I said, well, what about these weird outliers that they are physically dominant, large, aggressive, uh, charismatic. So they fit certain uh, traits of the alpha. And yet they are highly sensitive emotionally, artistically. They have high verbal facility. They're just, they really have a command of language. And so they don't, they don't fit into either alpha or beta. Mm -hmm. And this is when I started to come across this idea of the sigma male, which is basically a guy with, with hyper masculinity in like four out of five domains, but that there are these certain areas in which they don't fit the alpha archetype. And, and you and I have talked about this. One of them is this notion of introversion. Right. So alphas tend to be around their people. So if they're in a leadership position, they love their guys, they put their hands on their troops, and they really enjoy that. And that's actually a function of dopamine. They, they get dopamine hits from that. And it turns out that certain brains of certain men's that I'll, I'll call sigmas from here on out, actually get a different chemical. It's a neurotransmitter. Um, I think it's called acetylcholine. And they get that instead of dopamine. And so that's only activated in, in times of like meditation, like you talked about earlier, or mm -hmm. in withdrawal when they are alone. And so they actually get a bump when they're alone. And so I started to notice there was these different small little nuances of brain states that would separate two men that maybe if you looked at them physically, they both look like alphas maybe, right? right? And if you only looked at four out of five traits, you would think, oh, that's an alpha. But that one trait of introversion actually makes them um, ill-suited for leadership. And again, you and I have talked about this. Neither yeah, one yeah. of us like leadership. We just no. can't stand it. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and yet no, no one would obviously think of us as betas. And so this, I kind of think of it like, um, you know, when Sir Isaac Newton unwove the rainbow, right? When he took white light and shot it through the prism and he splintered it out in all the different lights from red to, to blue, right? He noticed that light, white light was actually four or five different uh, wavelengths. And I think the male psyche, it's time for us to kind of see that there's more than just alpha and beta. There are these other archetypes. And again, the reason that matters is because I think guys like me and you and, and many of my readers, I mean, I consider probably 80% of my readers to be sigmas, is they didn't know where they fit. And so right. they would find, find themselves ill-suited for their role. So they would try to go into leadership. Like I, I was a, a business owner and I had employees and subcontractors and business partners for the longest time. And I was terrible at it. And I never understood why. Because I mm -hmm. thought, well, I should be good at this, but I wasn't. Right. And so I think 
the, the introduction of the Sigma male gives guys like us a place to go. Now, it doesn't determine our future or anything like that, but it does give us a handhold. Something's like, okay, that makes sense at the level of the brain and thus at the level of our personalities. Totally, totally, totally. I mean, I think a certain amount of it is, is, is uh, learned or can be learned or, yep. or, or we can adapt to it. And like anything, you know, it's not, nothing's completely deterministic in that way. You know, uh, right. uh, I mean, I, a friend of mine, Greg, he, he's, uh, you know, used to lead a lot of men, but he was trained to do it since he was 18 years old. You know, he was in the, the military for a really long time and, and uh, you know, was at a fairly elite level at a few points. And so obviously he's been leading teams and been involved in teams and had to lead men and, uh, you know, learn some of the ins and outs of that, you know, early on. But if you don't have any experience with it, it's definitely a learning skill. And if you try to do it, I think there's a quote, uh, like professionals, uh, practice, like pro professionals practice at home and, uh, amateurs practice in real life. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and yeah. you know, unfortunately, the military guys gives I think a lot of guys uh, an opportunity to take that role and, and make some mistakes in a contained environment. Uh, not necessarily like on a battlefield, because most of them, most of the time, they're not on a battlefield. You know, they're just right. yeah. And uh, so they're they're, they're get, getting to have that experience. But uh, uh, you know, if if you all of a sudden you know are thrust into a leadership position, then it's you don't have all that that experience to draw on so it can be very tricky but yeah i mean there's certain people like you said i think we both talked about neither of us really get into bossing people around it's not and some so even guys who aren't leaders uh, there's a lot of like we'll play the game of like let's just see what he does you know like that that's a very guy game you know like yeah. i and i never play that game like it, it never even occurs to me to like i'm gonna say something messed up to this dude just to see what he says you know, and it's a cool, I, I, I'm not against it. You know, it's a cool thing, but it's that never would cross my mind. You know, right. Exactly. And, and one of the other domains that I uh, talk about in the book is history. And, and so here's why that matters. So I've obviously discussed the brain part and, you know, the genetics and, and the hardware of the brain and why that matters. But I'll, I'll kind of tag team onto what you were just saying about culture and about learning experiences. So one of the things I looked at was this kind of cross-cultural uh, role for the Sigma. So here's some examples. So like the uh, Sicilian mafia have the role of the consigliere. Right, so yes. you have the Dawn, the leader, who's the out right hand man, who's the Sigma archetype for the system. You take maybe a tribal culture, the Comanche or the Sioux or whatever, Maori, and you have again the chief, who's going to be the alpha, and then you have the shaman, the guy he goes to, and for advice and says, hey, you know, uh, tell me about your dreams, you know, tell me what's going to happen in the battle that we're going to have with our rivals next week, you know, and the shaman would advise. The chief and I think we see these kinds of archetypes play out over and over again which gives me the impression that they're not one-off that they're not unique to modernity that they're archetypes that have, have been with us from the beginning because they are cross-cultural and and I think that 
is maybe the function now of men like you and I as artists is that our job is to advise people in leadership positions. I notice a lot of the people who do uh, talk to me, uh, ask my advice on things, read the book, etc. A lot of them are alphas, and they do want the weird kind of knowledge that I have. It's very idiosyncratic. They're not going to get it from their troops. They're not going to get it from the people they lead. And they kind of need it as fun people and they feel comfortable doing it. I, feel like I think we agree that men need to feel like we're doing our job. Whatever our job is, we need to feel like we're confident. So actually, one of the things that you're talking about as far as the Sigma male and, and this guy who's the advisor, uh, it just uh, kind of triggered something that I'm working on. Uh, Dumanziel uh, came up with the trifunctional hypothesis of Indo-European societies. And at the king, in the, the king role at the top, there, it's a pyramid that goes, uh, you know, obviously, you know, there's the farmer part of the culture, uh, which is, you know, kind of perpetuates order. And then there's the warrior tribal culture that's been a part of all these societies for a long time. And at the top, there's the king, the king role. But the king role is split. It's always split between the crazy king and the king that's all about order. Like the law and justice king and then the, crazy, the mad king. Right. And they, he, he gives examples of that that they had in ancient Rome. And he talks about Romulus and Remus and, you know, and Romulus, he compares him, I think, to Numa, you know, like uh, he, the guy who take over after him is all about like, I'm going to have a wife and a family and this is how things are going to be done. And it's going to be very ordered. But Romulus was kind of a crazy, uh, and, and it's a myth, but, uh, you know, it's Romulus was the crazy tribal chieftain. Let's rape the Sabine woman. But, right. uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, there's a lot of, and, and Odin is actually a very, uh, is a figure that's, you know, taken on both roles in, in, in the Germanic system. But I think that if you really look at it, you, you have this very, uh, you know, Apollonian, very uh, order-based kind of Olympian version of him that sits in a high chair above Asgard and rules everything. But then, you know, half the other stories, a lot of them that are come down are also he's the trickster and he goes into trances and all these things and, and uh, that, you know, are more of a shaman type role. And, you know, I think that, that you know, it basically got two, two roles got crushed together by the time I got to Odin at one point. Uh, you know, Dumanzio actually makes the argument that it's uh, Odin and Tyr and Tyr just kind of fell away and there's not a lot of literature about him, but and that may be true. Who knows? Cause no one knows the answer to that really. But, uh, it's just interesting that you know this this sigma is kind of maybe the the mirror image of the 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 alpha right right yeah i mean i think that works and there's a line in my book because you know the characters actually have dreams and and the dream world is actually kind of a real world in sanction and mm -hmm. and so odin is actually in sanction as a character and one of the lines dur during this dream state was uh, you know odin Drink, um, spoke only in poetry and drank only of wine, right? right? Like that's a that's part of his 
mythology is the, the Dionysus, right? The, the wine yeah. drinker and the poet. Yeah. And so, yeah, no, I, everything you just said maps on to the way I conceptualize it as well. And I, I mean, I, I think the book, let me backtrack a little bit. I, I think I was very, when I wrote the book, I was very interested in helping myself at first kind of understand my own life because my own life despite my um um what what i consider to be traits that should lead to success right so high cognition high verbal facility high work ethic you know these these traits um that should have led to success actually i noticed were stumbling blocks in modernity that I was actually at odds with my society at all times. And I wanted to know why. And so Sanction was basically uh, a postmortem, like a, a, a forensic analysis of why my life was always so uh, contentious, why I was never fitting in. Mm -hmm. And, and there, again, there's all kinds of levels to look at it. I mean, I look at it from one, one aspect is like my people, I'm Scottish on both sides of my family. And, my family's from the south and so the archetype of the southerner is is pretty well known in american culture everyone knows that a southerner is more likely to just fight over any insult right like that it's an honor culture and yeah and and the data backs that up i mean the yeah. south is three times as violent as the north i mean it's just yes it's just known. okay well i wanted to know why i was always fighting and in trouble and always holding grudges. Like I wanted to understand that. So I, I looked first at my family background and it made sense. It's like, okay, I'm Scottish. The Scottish people are assholes. Got it. Okay. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then I wanted to look at it like deeper, like I said, at the, at the genetic level. And, and that's when the MAO dash a short chain allele gene really came about like, okay, now I understand why, because here's an interesting thing about that gene. In most people, when they get an insult, let's say I, I say, hey, Jack, you know, you're just, you're a bastard. And, and now you've taken offense, like Roman just called me a bastard. Right. And a normal person, what happens is you get a dopamine release on your DMPFC, your dorsal medial prefrontal cortex. And it triggers a response, a visceral response, anger. And that dopamine gets metabolized washed away in about five seconds in a normal person okay so in five seconds you're over it like chemically you're over it but yeah. in a person with this with this specific gene this mao-a gene what happens is that dopamine actually lays on that part of the brain for a hundred times as long so for five six minutes you're pissed off and then what happens is now you get secondary chemicals like epinephrine or adrenaline and that heart and adrenaline hardwires memories we know that's part of its function and so you the brain of a man with that gene and about 13 14 percent of men have that gene the brain of a man with that gene is functionally different than most men's and so most men can get over an insult in five seconds yeah. but those guys they can't they metabolically cannot get over an insult and not only can they not get over it but they will remember it forever. And like, so for 50 years, they're gonna remember the guy in second grade that insulted them, you know? And, and I wanted to explain this functionally, that it wasn't a, 
a lack of discipline or a lack of character, but it was actually a function of the brain and that it was, you know, and there was a reason for it because the, the majority of men with that gene actually come from honor cultures, herding cultures, mountain cultures, you know, austere environments where you had to be a dick to survive. And so I wanted to look at it at that level too. So the genetic level, the cultural level, like I talked about earlier. And then of course I wanted to see, well, okay, is there some way that I could harness that personality type into a functional culture? Because I know it's not going to work in modernity, right? Like guys like me, guys like you, guys like many of the people we talk to find that we don't fit in to, to modern culture. We, we can feel that we don't fit in. Is there something we can do about that? And I think this is our common project, right? Is to build a parallel culture, smaller, you know, uh, more tribal, but a made up of like-minded people. So our personality types can fit in in a pro-social way. We don't have to flee to the wilderness and become Ted Kaczynski. We can act in a pro-social way, but within our own tribe and our own culture. So those were the kind of, that, that was the main impetus for the writing of the book was for me to understand why I don't fit in and how could I maybe fit in if I had uh, some way to build an alternative or, or parallel culture. Right. Well, there's also, I mean, uh, you know, there's different coping mechanisms for that as well. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I definitely don't have the, the super anger vibe uh, all the time, but I mean, I mean, as far as insults and stuff goes, but uh, I, I know as far as introversion and things like that and, and uh, not wanting to be uh, wrapped around people all the time, uh, you know, there's, there's different ways to, to handle that. I think a lot of people actually talk about that. But uh, something that you were talking about uh, reminded me of, of the finest article that's ever been on the internet. Uh, there, <laughs> years and years and years ago, I found this article on, uh, uh, it, it, it's about the South, and it's about the, you know, the, the Scots in the South, and uh, it, it's an article about their whole culture of eye gouging. <laughs> and, it, it, and it's written in the period so it's it's hilarious like they're no better than animals <laughs> like because these guys would literally rip each other's eyes out and that was like a thing that was normal and you'd see dudes walking around with one eye because the only way they could solve the argument was to rip the other guys <laughs> pulled him out by his eye strings and it's it, the way it's it, it, they were wobbling around and it's, it's like this, it's, it's, it's hilariously written, uh, you know, by, uh, you know, someone from the North like coming down, like what is even going on here? But uh, yeah, it's, I, I'm going to, I made a little note for myself. I'm going to put a link to it uh, when I post this uh, podcast up eventually. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, the English just back in the day and still today think of the Scottish as barbarians. I mean, they just, see them as the most uncouth, unwashed, out of control uh, barbarian tribe ever invented by God or, or Satan. You know, I mean, they just are, the English hate the Scottish and, and the feeling obviously yeah. goes the other way too. Right, but, right. And, and I basically see America as a, just a, 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 the English versus the Scots version 2.0 because the English settled the North 
and the Scots settled the South. Yeah. And we all know what happened in 1861. I mean, they just went at it again. It was just a replay of 1745. And, and again, because of the way America has morphed into this kind of diffuse country now where everyone mixes with everyone, right. it's harder for this subculture. And I consider Scots to be a subculture because I think America is pretty English in its mindset. Um, that these subcultures have found themselves at odds with the main culture. And I really wanted to understand that. And I, I think a lot, I think Americans are encouraged to see themselves as Americans, right? Not as German Americans or English Americans or Scott Americans. We're encouraged to think of ourselves as Americans. And I think, I think where that breaks down is at the level of, of the brain, at the personality of the culture, because the brains, the genes, the, the, you know, the bottlenecks of evolution between the Highlander Scots and the pastoral English is so different that over, you know, thousands of years, you really do have different personality types and it can be mollified, right? Like you can't, I mean, I can behave myself, right? Like I'm not in prison right now, so <laughs> I can behave myself, but, but I also live at 9,000 feet in the middle of the right. forest alone, right? Like I do kind of live like Ted Gazinski, you know, yeah. minus the bombs, right? And right. so, yeah, so like that's been my my middle way is to kind of extract myself from the culture and then kind of dip into it when, when I can or when I need to or when I feel like, yeah, I can deal with people right now. But I, I think a lot of men feel like they don't know what to do with their innate personality traits in a culture that's very modern, very Pacific, you know, very effeminate. They don't know how to plug in their innate aggression. And so I wanted the men that I felt like were constitutionally or genetically or culturally designed over thousands of years to be aggressive, to have some, at least a rationale that they're not insane, they're not evil, they're not um, criminals, they're just different. And maybe they have a way, you know, now that they know that they can say, okay, now from that starting point, I can go somewhere constructive, positive, pro-social. Um, but I felt like it had to start with some understanding of who they were. No, that's, yeah, that's true. Cause there, there are a lot of those guys that just have a real hard time. Um, you know, whether it's, you know, you see it a lot with guys who are in the military and then they get out and then they don't, they don't know what to do cause they don't know how to function, uh, right. you know, with the HR department at like, you know, <laughs> right. at, at, at widget corp. Uh, they can't really, <laughs> you know, they can't really deal with that person. And, uh, and so they, it's a different, it's a little, you know, uh, you know, learning curve that they have to go through to, if they're going to function and, you know, be able to have a productive life out after that kind of experience. But uh, before we wrap up here, do you, tell me, tell me more about the, the storage container in, uh, in the mountains and what you're doing up there. Yeah. Well, okay. So when I was building it, I actually lived in a tent for the first five months and I'd spend all day, every day building it. And so I live in a 40 foot uh, shipping container. So it's 40 feet, foot, feet long, eight feet wide. And basically I designed and built almost everything that's in it. So it's mostly concrete and steel. It's very industrial uh, aesthetic. And um, it took me about five months to build it. I have a second one next to me that's my garage for vehicles, motorcycles, tools. And, and then in between there's like a concrete path. And I did all the 
underground stuff too. So like the electric and septic and cistern, you know, all the guts of uh, a home. And it took me about five months to do that. And then um, once that was finished, uh, I got to work on writing the book. And then the book took me about 10 months. And so my next project is now that I've been able to reach out to, to people through the book and get people to, to uh, you know, connect with me. My next project is to use, because I have 35 acres here, is to use the land and the uh, infrastructure to um, build an additional, you know, bunk houses where men can come as a retreat, whether it's a writer's retreat or, you know, they just want to hike or hunt, you know, or engage in, you know, masculine activities away from the modern world where they can come and kind of tap into that primal nature. Um, and I can kind of, you know, I can give them a spot where they know, you know, that safe space you were talking about earlier, where they know they can come and they don't have to worry about minding their P's and Q's. They don't have to worry about petty bureaucratic uh, laws and nonsense. And they can come and, and tap into that for however long they want. It could be a day, it could be a year, I don't care. But the point is, is that's my next project is to, is to find like-minded men who want to make this a, a common project. Because I, I feel like real infrastructure, like physical space in the world is necessary. That, that mere, uh, you know, uh, intellectual or internet culture is not enough. I, I think the internet is good for connecting us, but I think we have to move it into the next domain, the, the embodied domain of flesh and, and blood. And, and I obviously know you feel that way too. Um, and so that's my next, my next uh, phase of this project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 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 exactly what you said. I mean, the internet it is a great way to connect, but I mean, I'm even hesitant to, to start something like, you know, nationwide you know, to, to facilitate any kind of group or connection thing, just because at the end of the day, I don't want to be traveling around constantly and beholden to people everywhere because it's not functional or practical. And, right. uh, you know, if you can have, you can have some people, you can have friends everywhere. Uh, I mean, I was just talking to some guy, I think he's going to show me around Switzerland when I go there, but uh, you can, you can have friends everywhere, but I think uh, it, it's important to have people close to you you know, like, uh, of like mind, yeah. you know, and that's, that's always good. But, uh, anyway, well, that sounds like a great project and I, you know, wish you all the best of, of luck with it and who knows, maybe someday I'll, I'll head out that way and, uh, come for a visit and see what you got going on. You're, but, uh, you're welcome here anytime, man. I'll, I'll cook you up some venison or elk or bear. You like bear? <laughs> I have not, I've not yet had bear and I, I will eat any Hannibal Lecter shit that you come up with. I, I, that's, that's my joke. Whenever I go to a restaurant, I'm like, Oh, they have eyeballs. I didn't know that we could eat eyeballs. Oh, all right. Give me some of those. But, uh, yeah, and I'm definitely I'm on that page, but, um, but anyway, yeah, th thanks for coming on the show again. This is, you know, Roman McClay and his, his book is sanction the book. And, uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it, Jack. Thank you, no man. No problem, man. No problem. Thank you for watching or listening to Start the World. You know, my personal mission is to help men become the best versions of themselves and to, to face some of the challenges that uh, we all face in the, in the 21st century. You know, it's, it's getting weird out there. Uh, so I'm having conversations with other men who are helping men face and overcome these challenges. 
And that's why I'm so excited about the new season of Start the World. Uh, you know, I have a lot of people scheduled. I'm going to talk to psychologists, therapists, martial artists, coaches, trainers, artists, spiritual leaders, and maybe just some, some fun weirdos. Uh, we're going to try to, to, to put out uh, an episode every week for a while, maybe 30 to 50 episodes this year. Uh, you know, I'm going to get some lavalier mics, maybe do some, uh, some in-person uh, interviews, and uh, maybe even some workout content. Uh, I think a lot of people would actually like that. Uh, you know, if you want to support this podcast or just my work generally, I am uh, I'm writing a book this year that I'm also pretty excited about. Hope, hopefully, it'll come out in the fall. Uh, I'm using Subscribestar. Uh, Subscribestar is an anti-censorship platform. Uh, you can sign up using a link in the show notes or on YouTube or just by typing in subscribestar.com slash Jack Donovan, and it should take you there. So thanks again for watching or listening to Start the World. This is Jack Donovan. Stay solar.